The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working, the podcast, where we offer leaders of today an opportunity to share their knowledge with the leaders of tomorrow. Each episode of our podcast draws from a live conversation I had on LinkedIn. You'll hear that leader's top takeaways alongside analysis and a deeper dive from me and my colleague, Nina Melendez. Hey, Nina. Hi, Dan. How's it going today? It's going great. It's beautiful in New York. My kid... My youngest plays soccer every Tuesday and Thursday. I pick him up right after recording this, and it's been so cold when I picked him up, and mm-hmm. now it's just warm, and it's fun to stand outside and watch him finish up his practice. So Tuesdays and Thursdays, always great days. Oh, fun. I played soccer, and you know what I love most about soccer is that smell of freshly cut grass, particularly when it's all beaten up from the kids running around in cleats. Oh, yeah. That's so nice. I would love to smell that. He plays on turf or on dirt. So that's a New York City thing, I guess. I didn't grow up here, but I guess that's what you get used to in New York. Did you play any sports growing up? Nina, I am not a sports guy at all. So I would sit in the field while playing soccer. Really? Until eventually my parents agreed to stop sending me to play soccer. I wrestled in high school. That was as close as I got. that's That's absolutely a sport. Horrible sport. Horrible sport. But, you know. Had to do something, so I did that. You don't have cauliflower ears, though. I don't. I don't. I wore my headgear, and I was very protective. And also, a little fun fact, I never had to really wrestle all that much because it turns out Uh where I grew up, there weren't many other people my weight. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrestled 119. I had the winningest record in my high school purely by default because I would go to the matches and no one was ever there to wrestle against me. Wait, when you say 119... (laughs) I had to wrestle. You, you had, weighed 119? Under, high, under 119. That's right. In high, in high school. <laughs> so there you go. So you were yeah. out playing soccer and uh, and I'm sure showing everyone up and being athletic and running past people and smelling the grass. And I was putting on a singlet and putting my arm up and then going back to the bench. I love these stories <laughs> from you, Dan. <laughs> um, I had a great time preparing for this interview because I think it was such a great conversation that you had with the CEO of Novartis. Yeah, really interesting guy. Second time Voss has been with us uh, on This Is Working. Very thoughtful CEO. He's a doctor turned executive. He's originally from Pittsburgh. He spends time in New York and around the world, but he lives in Basel, Switzerland with his wife and two sons. He is a lifelong vegetarian. He is a practitioner of best health practices. He thinks about his breathing. He thinks about his company. And because he's a thinker, he's very fun to interview. Hmm. He's very introspective and he's willing to share. So it's always great to have someone like Voss come into the studio. I really appreciated that you started the interview talking about understanding and learning how to fail. As a CEO of a major pharmaceutical company, there are such high stakes when you fail. You know, he talked about medication getting pulled from the shelves or medication not being developed the way he'd want to. I mean, that can lead to death. That can lead to a lot of other things. So understanding how to fail is a huge component of how to be successful in that job. Should we listen to what he had to say? Yeah, let's do it. 
I mean, I had been very fortunate in my career that throughout the whole process, I had success after success. There were setbacks, but I would never say failures on the scale you fail as a, as a CEO, where, you know, you go, we had a situation where, you know, we were hitting record high share prices. And then within a month, we had a major drug get pulled for a safety issue. We had a global pandemic. We had another drug pulled and suddenly valuation was completely wiped off the table. You go from being a hero to a zero in the investor base and the media. Um, and suddenly you have to grapple with that. And you, and you largely grapple with that alone as a CEO because there's not many places you can turn to. I think you have to go through the experience. And I think you come to a place where you either realize you're going to let all of this make you feel small or destroy you, or you're going to say, I can learn from this. I can get stronger. I'm going to stay in the ring. I'm going to keep trying to fight the next fight and grow and, and, and I'm going to get knocked down again. I'm going to get back up. And I think that process of getting knocked down gets back up. You do it enough times, then you start to see these are all just opportunities to get better, to learn, to grow. Um, and you realize it's inevitable. These things are going to happen. And it's not always your fault. Sometimes it is. But the opportunity is there to just, just improve. So what is that process for getting back up? And how has it changed for you? Initially, I, I took these setbacks really hard. And I think you have to be able to separate who, who you are as a person from the role. And that, that, I think, is easier said than done when you're a CEO. It all gets mixed up. But when you can separate yourself from the, being a CEO and, and, and who you are as a person, you start to have, I think, a better sense of self to say, look, these things are going to happen. It's okay. Um, I need to learn from it. I need to grow from it but I'm not gonna let this uh, completely change who I am as, as a person. Um, and you know, I think I've also learned to reach out for help a lot more. I have two coaches and I, I have two coaches. I have an extraordinary wife who is my lead coach. And I think without all of that, learning to reach out for help to process all of this is also I think a big, big learning for me over the course of the journey. If you can learn to move on from feeling like something is unfair and rather say, look, these are events, they've happened. I could have done things that, that are better. I could have changed maybe how I looked at a situation um, and process that and then quickly move on to, okay, next thing, right? I got to get back up. I always think about some of the greatest athletes, right? Who, whoever play their sports, their ability to miss a shot and get to the next point. You ask Roger Federer, how did he get to be such a great tennis player is that he's always thinking about what's the next point. What Voss is talking about here echoes something that Oscar Munoz said in our interview, the former CEO of United. He talked about going to a flight simulator and of sitting down in the pilot seat and talking to this person who had moved from being a co-pilot to a pilot. And the, the pilot said to him, one of the hardest parts about doing it, when you're a co-pilot, you can always look to your left and there's your pilot who can help give you answers. But when you're sitting in the pilot seat, you look to the left and all you see is a reflection of you. Hmm. And Oscar talked about how that, as a CEO, is something you feel all the time. You look to the left, and there's nobody there. It's just you. And Voss is saying the same thing. He has, at these periods, when he felt low, when he had failed, and when the investors were telling him he failed, the only thing he could do was turn to himself. Voss does say that he has people he can turn to, coaches, his wife, but it's not the same. For a CEO, there is nobody out there that is dealing with the exact same set of problems. There's no one who is 100% responsible like you are. So he's had to learn to deal with that. Yeah, I just imagine that it can get a little lonely at the top, yeah. the higher you rise. How do you deal with it? It's not lonely for me because I have peers who I can turn to and we're typically dealing with some of the same issues. 
I can reach out to a number of them, and I do reach out to them, a number of them all the time to say, I'm dealing with this issue. Have you ever seen this before? And I think that's the difference between being the CEO. There is no one else at the company. That is the one right. place where there is that one title, and that's it. And that's it. That's it. You know, I remember when I worked at J.P. Morgan, whenever Jamie Dimon walked into a room, whenever he was on the floor— it's like everyone knew. And when he left, it was like, Elvis has left the building type of vibe. And I wonder if that gets old. People looking up to him all the time, wanting things from him, even if it's just a nugget of wisdom. I can't imagine that that sort of pressure is good. Next time we have a CEO, let's ask that question. Let's find out what it's like, because that is not Jamie Dimon alone. I'm sure Voss feels exactly yeah. the same thing as he's walking through laboratories or offices. Yeah. And I'd love to hear from our podcast listeners. If you are a leader, how do you deal with the pressures of feeling like everyone is looking to you for answers? Another part of what he said here that really resonated with me was this idea of learning to let go. And even if you feel like something is unfair or some a decision was made or something happened that didn't feel right to you, being able to let go and move on and just keep on with the job. So key. I don't think that you can survive in business without having that ability. Yeah. Otherwise, you just stew and no one wants to stew with you. I can think back to times where I experienced this in a past life, especially when I was a writer, and I felt like there were plum stories that I wasn't getting. And it felt very unfair. Mm -hmm. There was a guy I can think of in particular who I was very much a rival with. I don't think he saw me as a rival, mm -hmm. but it was one of these unrequited rival situations mm -hmm. where I was like, oh, he's getting every good story and I'm not getting anything. And I don't mm -hmm. think he even knew my name. Uh -huh. And uh, this was – and it always felt unfair. I was like, I'm doing just as good as, mm -hmm. as he's doing. And then you realize like either I can go to my editors and say, why aren't I getting this? I should have gotten that, which would have decreased my ability to get any other story. Hmm. Or I could just keep doing better, find my own pieces. And this really was – what I think was my realization was that instead of waiting for something to come to me, mm -hmm. I needed to go out and do it myself. But if your editors are giving your rival great stories and giving you bad stories or not setting you up for the best success, then that is a little unfair, right? So at that point, when do you bring it up or when do you just go, unfairness is part of the, the job? It wasn't even saying unfairness is part of the job. It was reorienting myself to hmm. say, I'm going to do my own stories. It doesn't matter to me if he's been given stories by these other editors because I'm going to do the stories I want to do. And these are great stories. And they turned out to be great stories. And I went on and did the kind of stuff I wanted to do. And it reframed how I saw the situation. I think the thing with fairness and unfairness is like you have to learn to pick your battles. Yeah. Because there's so much that is unfair. And reframing, like you were talking about, is that there are things that like, let's say that I have gotten, that was probably very unfair. Great call. Perks and whatever stuff that I maybe didn't, wasn't 100% deserving of or someone was more deserving of, but I got it. So in the same vein, I think there, there is wisdom in being able to just let it go. That's such a great call. I think we probably never think about the unfairness that comes our way. Yeah. The good, the good the unfairness. Good unfairness exactly. Yeah, that benefit, the unfairness that benefits us. Right. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more on my conversation with Vas Narasimhan, CEO of Novartis. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back. Dan, you were talking about being able to bring things up to your supervisor if you feel a certain way about something. And there has to be a culture for that, right? A culture of understanding and a culture of wanting to hear grievances and all of that. And Voss talks about like creating a culture that he wanted at Novartis and then discovering that there were like flaws with it. Let's take a listen. One of the interesting things I think about culture, just to to riff for a moment on on your question, is that there's always a flip side to every culture. So when we roll out inspired, curious, unbossed, this culture I described to you, people loved the positive sides of this culture. But people didn't necessarily embrace the other side, which we didn't talk enough about, which is that you have to be totally accountable. You have to really hold yourself to the highest levels of competence. You have to ensure that you're making really robust decisions and be willing to be challenged to make sure. Everyone thought this was just gonna be like a a complete free-for-all. We're free, right? And that was not the intention. Um, And so it's similar now as we try to figure out this kind of idea of a high support, high challenge environment. How do you get people really comfortable with the fact you're gonna get challenged and it's to make you better, it's to get us to make a better decision, but it's not because we're trying to make any sort of personal attack on you. Um, And I think the best way to do it is to have leaders model the behavior. And one of the things I've learned is I have to show in our meetings, our discussions, I'm ready to be challenged. I ask my teams now, I've learned to to ask you, ask, who disagrees with me? Please disagree with me. So that people see I'm comfortable getting challenged and understand that I have the humility to say, I don't know the answer. These are super complex decisions. Please challenge me. And I'm hoping that as leaders start to model that behavior, people get more comfortable with it that will filter through the system, and then you get better decisions and, and a better environment. Yeah, this was, I thought, really interesting because Voss has talked in the past about the Novartis culture and the idea is inspired, curious, and unbossed. That unbossed, by the way, I'm not sure if that's a, a real word or that's a saying that he made up, but that's the culture at Novartis. You are your own boss. And so I think that like a lot of us like this idea of working at a company where you get to make your own decisions. I mean, the sociological experiment of what happens when you don't have bosses is that everyone's their own boss and now everyone's competing with each other and they're going into meetings as their own bosses and they're arguing with each other or they're disagreeing with each other. And maybe they don't have to make a decision or it's unclear who was making a certain decision Hmm. because – You've got a bunch of bosses in a room. So who tells the bosses who's the boss of the bosses? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Would you want to be at a, a, a place where everyone's the boss? No. And I actually really appreciate having a boss who is a boss. 
What about you? I think if people know how they relate to other people, it's helpful. Yeah. I think it's helpful to have an unwritten or maybe written diagram in place that just helps you explain where people sit yeah. within the organization. Now, yeah. one of the things that we have in LinkedIn that I really think is the special sauce of this place, or some of the spe- one of the special sauces of this place, is a um, is a framework around how to deal with escalations. Mm. This is called the rapid framework. I think a lot of companies have something like this where you, whenever you're starting a project, you list out who was in charge of what, who is the decision maker, who has the ability to veto that decision, who needs to be informed uh, along the way. And then it doesn't stop there. If there is something, if there is a point where two people disagree, we have an alignment process in place here where you have five days to clear it up. And so the two of us, in this case, would take our problem, we'd write out a Google Doc, and then we have to give it to our bosses. Mm. And then our bosses, it starts a process that within five days, a decision has to be made. Then everyone has to either agree and commit to move forward or disagree and commit. Either way, you're committing. There's commitment. Exactly. And the Mm. decision's been made. So I think in an unbossed world, you can get away with having everyone be a boss, but you have to have this escalation, very clear escalation process in place, and you have to make sure that emotions are not involved. Mm. One of the great things about the escalation process is escalations are welcome here. You're encouraging escalations. And Voss talks about this, this idea if he wants people to disagree with him. I mean, you said at the top, he's a very self-reflective person. And he goes into meetings and he says, disagree with me, like challenge me. I don't think that many people have that. Absolutely. And that's why he says that he is hoping that other leaders model that behavior. Right. He wants to create more people who are as comfortable with being challenged as he is. Right. And so the only way that he feels like he's going to accomplish that is if he can pull people off the sidelines and get them to argue with him. Right. This harkens back to something that Mary Barra said Mm. to us years ago in a This Is Working interview when she had first started as CEO of GM. And she said the GM had a culture of people sitting in a meeting and nodding. Mm. And you would go to a meeting and the boss would say something and everyone would nod their heads and they would all leave the rooms and they would then joke about what was said in the meeting, why they're not going to do it. They would never do it. They would make fun of it. Mm. And Mary Barra was like, that's not happening on my watch. And she started pulling people in from the sidelines, people who were sitting along the walls in conference rooms. And she would say, I want to hear from you. You know, Becky, what do you think about this? And Becky, who has never talked in a meeting before, would suddenly be forced to talk, and Mary would push her. Do you agree with this? You know, get have some skin in the game. Commit to something. Mm. Say what you're feeling and make it psychologically safe to disagree. Mm. And then once you get that disagreement in place, once people are airing stuff out and saying how they feel in public, then they're more likely to commit to it. Nina, this next part, Mm-hmm. was so interesting to me. I, I mean, I was waiting for this part of the interview because I had heard Voss in the past talk about the idea of being the company's chief energy officer or chief energy multiplier. And I have to tell you, I didn't understand it. And he said it so confidently in past interviews that I was like, I should understand this, but I don't. And so I was very excited to hear how he described it, but even more so what the why this was so important to him that he would just talk about it all the time. So let's hear what he has to say. It's actually a concept I learned from my longtime coach, Scott Pelton. And, uh, you know, he used to always say, look, your job is a chief energy officer, chief energy multiplier. 
And you realize that you know what you can do in this role of a CEO, where you have you know we have you know almost a hundred thousand people around the globe, is how do you get these people to bring energy to the work that they do, and bring energy because they have a sense of purpose, they believe in the culture, they believe in the mission. That's actually the biggest thing you can do as a as a leader. I mean, you of course have to take all the decisions, all the, but that's the real real power of the role. But one of the lessons is in order to give energy, you have to have you have to have energy. Energy, in my mind, is what takes us from the ninety percent to the ninety nine percent, right? I mean, all the other stuff have to be in place. There's, there's no magic to this, right? In the end, people have to have clear accountabilities. They have to know the strategy. They have to know the role. They feel like they're well supported by their by their direct superior or their boss. All of the basics have to be in place. But the difference is what makes an individual go the extra minute, the extra mile to make something extraordinary happen. And I think so much of leadership in the end is how do you enable a group of people who are otherwise ordinary do something extraordinary. And that I think is in that nuance of how do you drive that extra nine, 10%. How do you kind of make people feel so connected to the work they're doing that they're willing to do the extra work and they don't even know why, right? But that's the difference. And in our industry, which is hugely competitive and super complex, that's what makes the difference between finding an amazing medicine and maybe not, and somebody else finds it and somebody else makes a difference for patients. I come back to, and I mentioned it before, is in order to lead anyone else, you gotta lead yourself. And it comes back to even the first topic we, we discussed on failing. So if you can't lead yourself, if you can't manage your own energy, it's very hard to convey anything to any, anyone else. And so do the work to build your own self-awareness, do the work to figure out what are the practices that enable you to have energy about the work. Because a lot of this is interesting, and I, don't, I would love to get, have more time to really study it, but I think as apes, we transmit a lot based on subtleties, right? And so people can sense whether somebody's energetic or not. You can't fake it. That's one of the, the, I think, realities of leadership. It has to come when they talk about authenticity. The flip side of it is what we're really saying is you can't fake it. It has to really come from within. So lead yourself. Make sure you have, you have energy. The second thing I think is you have to really reflect on how you lead. I think we talked about it last time I was here, a student of leadership is what I'm trying to always be and always trying to learn how to be a better leader. But you have to ask, how do you show up in front of your teams and what do you transmit? And get the feedback, and then keep trying to improve and adjust and experiment as to what, what really works. So that's the simple framework I use. Lead yourself, lead the team, lead the enterprise. And in each one of those dimensions, how are you showing up? How are you growing? How are you getting better? I love what he said about just owning it if you don't have it. Just saying, I don't, I'm, today I'm dealing with something X because people will realize. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think people notice when when a leader's faking it? I'm sure they do. I just don't. I have never seen it in practice. I have never seen a leader come into a meeting and say, I have this thing to present, but I'm not really feeling it today for X, Y, Z reasons. Mm. Isn't that part of being a leader is that you just sort of swallow the pill? One thing that I, I have seen over time at the places I've worked is you start picking up on the ticks of the people who lead the organizations. Mm. And you start being able to say, they'll say certain things. You're like, oh, they don't really believe in this. Mm. Like a certain phrase that they've used all the time with projects that died or that never got funding. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, that actually means. You start like, there's like a secret language of yeah. how organizations work. So maybe that's what I mean when you can't really fake it. You, you talked about 
earlier this idea of Jamie Dimon walking on the floor and everyone paying attention. When you're the leader, everyone's paying attention. When you're the CEO, everyone is paying attention to what you're saying and what you're doing, and they're writing it down, and they're slacking or teamsing it to other colleagues in real time. And so I think when you fake it, everyone's like, oh, you know, people who've been around for a while, like, uh, this is what he really means. Right. Do you think that in order to be a good leader, you have to have some a certain type of energy or maybe it's not charisma, but it's a kind of energy that you bring to the room? I think so. I think that you would ask me in a previous podcast this question about what's your superpower. And I said I thought it was optimism. But yeah. I think what I really meant was this idea about getting excited about stuff. Hmm. And it wasn't, it's not optimism. It's this idea that, like, I really believe in what I do. And I believe in the power of what we as a team do. And I believe in the mission of this company. And I'm not faking it. I really believe it. And so when we make mistakes, it doesn't matter to me that much because I know that the mission still matters. And I know that the work that we do every day matters. And so that kind of energy, I think, helps even when you have fallen or when you've made a mistake. When you fail or you stumble or you're not sure, I think that you want someone who's in the room saying, it's all good. We got mm. this. It's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Voss says here, I thought this was a great quote. I think so much of leadership in the end is how you enable a group of people who are otherwise ordinary to do something extraordinary. I loved that It's part. a great quote. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about. And it comes through having this kind of energy and excitement yeah. and of pointing people that, they, that there is a bigger goal that yeah. is achievable. And if they just stretch, they can get there. What resonates with you about my conversation with Vas Narasimhan, the CEO of Novartis? Let me know on LinkedIn using the hashtag thisisworking or send us your voice. You can make a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at thisisworking at linkedin.com. Either way, you might hear your contribution on an upcoming episode. Please share this podcast episode with a friend and review it. It helps new listeners find us. If you'd like to hear the full conversation between Dan and Vas, check the show notes. We'll link to it there. This is Working as a LinkedIn editorial production. Our production team includes Sarah Storm, Stephen Valdivia, Asaf Gidron, and Lolia Briggs. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. I'm Nina Melendez, senior producer. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Be well and stay curious.